hill Cause you're riding on the mountain of your own free will And you're zipping in a flash on a daring dash Down a waterfall so rapid that you go splish splash Splash mountain Zippity doo dah Splash mountain Zippity hey My oh my Swish 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 Wonderful day Swish Splish splash Plenty of sunshine Swish Splish splash In my way How do you do, Ohana, and welcome to the Disney Guys Uncensored. This is episode 67, reported on June 29th, 2020. We're your hosts, Drew, Bob, and Tin. And on tonight's episode, we dive into the past, present, and future of Splash Mountain. So come, journey with us as we zippity-doo-dah, ready our ponchos, and party in New Orleans. And I had to fight Bob for this amazing intro. I really hope you guys like it. This is the Splash Mountain rap that was an amazing commercial put out by Disney with a ride that introduced. And um, if you really like it, um, stay tuned for the end of the episode where you can listen to the full version of it. Um, Bob, how do you feel that I, I put that there for you? It's, um, yeah, it, uh, it's an interesting take on uh, late 80s, early 90s Disney commercials, um, and uh, effectively it sucks, but I, I actually That's did agree. That's a weird way of saying all-time great Disney commercial. But yeah, I'll be is. honest with Go you, because, because afterwards, uh, Drew really twisted my arm on it, and I actually came to the conclusion, I said, you know what, bud? Just go with it, I said, because I may hate it, but I'm sure our idiot listeners will love it. So, oh. <laughs> sure enough, here we are. Here we are. Uh, I'm sure you all really love that classic commercial. Well, we have a fun episode, an educational episode for you guys tonight. Again, we're going to talk a bit about Splash Mountain and the history of it and how the tie-ins to Son of the South and all the way to the new news and future of Splash Mountain and the integration of Princess and the Fraud at Sight and Stuff. But before we head there, we do have some news to talk about. So let's head on over to the Disney News Desk. <laughs> You know, Ohana, I'm just playing. I love each and every one of you. <laughs> I don't think you guys are idiots. I really don't. You guys are good people. Thanks for listening to the show. Uh, so, <laughs> some news this week. Uh, coming out of Central Florida, or Florida in general, uh, where they have uh, effectively banned statewide um, sales of alcohol uh, at bars to uh, drink on-premises. Uh, so this has set off a chain reaction at Disney Springs where a lot of the um, – Tim, what is it, 50% of your sales? If 50% yeah, the, the, are greater? The governor's order reads that any business that derives 50% or greater of its mm -hmm. sales from in-store alcohol consumption uh, yes. must be closed. Yes. Uh, so this has so, led to quite a few uh, yeah, Disney Springs yeah. places. Uh, for instance, you know, Jock Lindsay's, we know of Jock Lindsay's uh, uh, hangar bars closed. Uh, Dockside Margaritas. Dockside Margaritas. Things. And Oga's Cantina over at Galaxy's Edge, which was supposed to open with the park on July 15th, uh, will not be opening 
Um, obviously, that's a small place, not a lot of outdoor seating, and with this uh, new restriction in place, you got to imagine it was just probably better off. And Tim, I know we're talking offline. You don't hold out hope for some of the smaller bars in Animal Kingdom either uh, opening up with the parks. Yeah, or Baseline Tap House at Hollywood Studios, which does have a lot of outdoor seating, but it mm. only sells uh, beer. So uh, yeah. definitely derives more than 50% yeah. of its sales. Yeah, I would alcohol. say that definitely. Now, again, what if they can be like a cash and carry place and you can walk around the park with it? So maybe, maybe they'll keep it open. We'll, we'll keep you abreast of anything that opens over the next couple of weeks. Uh, we are looking at July 15th for the studios uh, and July um, 12th or 8th uh, for the rest of it. So we'll be, we'll be interested to see what happens. And uh, in that same vein, Disney sent out emails to its annual pass holders uh, for the July 9th and 10th preview days at Magic Kingdom and Animal Kingdom. And the reservations filled up uh, before many annual pass holders even received and or opened their emails. Uh, so clearly, Tim, we know that the first week of reopening is sold out uh, at all the parks at this point. Uh, and now it looks like the AP days, the preview days are also sold out. Certainly not a, a lack of enthusiasm for the parks reopening. Uh, if they, again, if the schedule, I, I can't stress enough based on how things have gone. And we talked about it a little bit last week, uh, if the parks reopen, uh, but the schedule reopening is sold out completely. So very, very interesting. Um, and, and that's a tribute to you listeners and to all the fans out there that love Disney and support Disney. Not necessarily don't support us, but you support Disney. And that's a tribute to you guys to get those parks sold out. And it'll be interesting to see what capacity they're at. Uh, we'll have to get some feet on the ground, as it were, uh, over the next couple of months and see if we can get some guys down there to, to scope it out for us. Uh, also in that vein, Epcot's Garden Grill will also be offering a character dining experience. At first, we believed it was only going to be at Topolino's at the Riviera Resort. And they did announce that the Garden Grill will offer the modified experience. Um, it, it really isn't clear what the modified experience will be. Uh, perhaps a walkthrough of some sort or, or socially distanced pictures. Uh, where they, you know, Who knows what it'll be. Uh, but this will looks like it will be the only in-park restaurant uh, that will include character dining. Uh, at least to this point. Again, anything that changes over the next couple of weeks, we'll be sure to pass it on. Uh, D23, the official fan club that Andrew convinced me was not worth the money back uh, in August not. of last year. <laughs> but we not. all got the free membership for our three-year deal on Disney+. Plus. Um, has postponed its Destination D Fantastic Worlds event until 2021. The event was initially supposed to take place in November at Walt Disney World. Uh, no dates, uh, hard dates announced for for the uh, for, for the replacement time. Uh, Destination D uh, Fantastic World was to honor Disney's many magical places, from the extraordinary to the fantastical. In addition, the Walt Disney Archives planned an all-new exhibit to include 50 iconic treasures representing the 50 years of the archives. If you're asking yourself, what the hell is Destination D? It's pretty much the off-year convention. Um, it's a little bit more intimate, a little smaller a little spe more specific to certain things where when you go to expo, it's three or four days of mayhem and bedlam and shenanigans and tomfoolery and, and big uh, announcements. Yeah. This is more of a specific traveling, almost exhibit type thing. Uh, seems like a lot of fun. Again, that will be postponed until 2021, but they did promise to keep doing their virtual events throughout 2020. And if you are a D 23 member, uh, check them out. They're they're really fun. 
In a little bit of odd news that we went back and forth on, Cirque du Soleil filed for bankruptcy today. Um, the company uh, Cirque received $300 million in new funding as part of a plan to restart, which at this point I don't understand bankruptcy any more than I understand when Andrew tells me about the financials every quarter. Uh, <laughs> you file bankruptcy, here's a $300 million check. I don't get it. Uh, but the company has 44 shows around the world, obviously has been a resident of Disney Springs since 1999. They did have a new show scheduled to start uh, right around Corona time which was March 2020, and I think here to henceforth we refer to March 2020 as Corona time. Uh, the show was planned to officially open uh, in April of 2020 with tickets costing $62 to $152, depending on seating. Um, it, interesting here. I, I don't know it's wholly surprising. Um, it'll be interesting to see what it means for Drawn to Life, if they open Drawn to Life, if they come back. Um, but I, I did see on uh, Broadway has started issuing refunds through January 3rd of 2021 uh, to give you an idea of what uh, theatrical performances are up against in some of these theaters. So uh, Cirque du Soleil in a tough spot because of the enclosed seating and, and how close the theatrical seats are. I, 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 I can't imagine that Cirque du Soleil puts on any shows in 2020, but uh, never say never, I guess. Uh, things can change and things will, uh, I'm sure, change. And in something that I would like to call Bub's self-indulgent time, which is pretty much every time we're on this podcast, uh, Expedition Everest creator Joe Rohde has once again commented on the condition of the Broken Yeti audio animatronic, which has now been out of order for 13 of the 13 and a half years that the ride has been open. Um, in a response to a Twitter post suggesting maintenance access to the figure was a problem, Joe said this, it is not an issue with maintenance access they were part of the design team and set the standard. In fact, it was seen as a model collaborative process. It's an unexpected and unforeseen set of issues, very complex with no easy or timely solutions as of yet. And in a follow-up response, a wise-ass said, oh, so they messed up. To which Joe <laughs> also replied, no, we didn't mess up. These guys did not ignore something or botch it. Innovation is like physical exploration of unknown spaces. There is stuff out there that you didn't know, and you only encounter it by exploration. And there it is, because he quoted Jurassic Park at the end, because God bless Joe Rohde. By all means, protect that man at all costs. Um, it, it's funny, because the reason I put this in here, and it has a lot to do with theme parks in general... Yes, there is uh, R and D in research develop in in theme parks and in 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 what Disney does. I was watching a Back to the Future um, kind of 35th anniversary making of feature that was on TV last night, and Robert Zemeckis is on there, and and they they invented a whole new camera uh, to uh, a dolly system camera to film Back to the Future too. When, when Michael J. Fox plays his entire family in the future. And it's crazy because his line was, listen, there's no R&D in film. It's you just do it and hope it works. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not saying that's the issue here because the poor Yeti has been broken for 13 of the 13 and a half years this ride has been open. But you have to think with, with the engineering prospects that they had, with the, the maintenance access they needed, with the Imagineering team that they had to do. The animatronic itself is the largest, is one of the, if not the largest, it is certainly one of the largest in the world, uh, not just Walt Disney World, in the world, period. Um, Tim, Andrew, both of you guys, uh, Tim, you, you obviously being an IT guy, Andrew, you have an engineering background. 
it, his response there, and, and I did love the response that the collaborative process an unforeseen set of issues. Andrew, and what me and you do, that's mm-hmm. called Tuesday. The unforeseen issues and very complex. And, and Tim, <laughs> I can only imagine with you networking for school departments that you run into the same thing. Uh, just unforeseen things. Do we take his comments at face value here that the Yeti is legitimately, it was just, Jesus, this thing was just so complex. We didn't know what we were getting into. But no, I, I, I mean... Yes and no. First of all, if 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 you're the most angriest person in the world, he's he's not far behind you, bub. And we get <laughs> seems a, a little edgy here. I like we it. gotta keep him on a tight rope here because he's gonna murder somebody over this thing. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, they, they they went out to do something that was never really been done, and and it was a big effort. Uh, but he even dug his own hole when they they think about everything. Disney is good at that. They think about all areas and scenarios. Obviously, something went wrong or or somebody didn't fully think of the long-term effects or, or known as sustainability with right. um with this this animatronic, the Yeti. So I, I, I want to say it's a little bit of both. I would say it, it's definitely something they didn't anticipate, but something that they didn't really fully engineer or look into either just because of the unknown or not known and i think that's what he uses the exploration portion right uh it's almost like mm-hmm. science right you have to do your your, your lab experience to see the the conclusion you'd make a hypotenuse or hypotenuse but it, it doesn't matter um you're not always correct right so that that's my take on it so so tim is he right to be as salty as he sounds here i mean because he's been answering these questions for 13 years i i think just because like a, a guy who is has no need to really be as much of a public figure as he has become, mm-hmm. uh, somewhat unwittingly, just gets this tweeted at him nonstop. <laughs> Anytime there's any kind of downtime or lull yep. it, in the public's eyes, there's not really any kind of downtime or lull with what Disney constantly innovating and imagineering. I mean, he's got to be his rope's end on this specific question. Um, I do think it's super interesting uh, because – Disney Parks fans and theme park fans in general have just accepted that the reality of the situation is Yeti can't be fixed because it's a maintenance access issue. And here he is finally coming out and saying it's not that. And, yeah. and that's just I mean, something he's that we almost, forever. I mean, he's almost saying, yeah, we effed something up when we built this. We're not sure what it is, but we effed something up when we put this together. And and you, I, I kind of respect him for it a little bit. Like Andrew said, this is a, a billion-dollar corporation that, that probably shouldn't be effing something of this scale up. Let's be honest. But but, but to that point, yep. um, I think it, even he was the one who said this. I was watching something a while back about Imagineering, and, and they were talking about for all these landmark, uh, quote-unquote, e-ticket attractions, they mm-hmm. take – they plan them so far out in the future and that the way Imagineering does it is they plan something and hope that by the time they're to that respective step in the construction, yeah. that the technology to do what they wanted to do exists. Uh, this was 100% the case with Rise of Resistance, Runaway Railway, mm-hmm. uh, Pooh's Honey Hut, and uh, Disney, uh, Tokyo Disney. Mm-hmm. Like all these big complex attractions, they have to start playing them before the technology they want to implement has even begun to be invented. So they're so, really rolling the dice on some mm-hmm. of this stuff. No, I hear. And, and, and the last bit is, is, is I'll say is too, is this should be something that the construction um, even, even kind of screwed up, right? Uh, a foundation could be off a little bit. Um, they could have done something differently with the poured concrete. It could have been good enough to pass inspection, 
but it could have also have screwed up the imagination plans. And at that time, maybe it would have been uh, too much money to, you know, fix it. So they figured, well, let's just go ahead and see what happens. Maybe it will still do it. And they were in some numbers. So those are the other things you're to think of. They might have had everything, you know, cross their T's, dots their I's. But then in the construction portion, there was something that went slightly wrong. So. Well, that's fantastic. I appreciate your guys' thoughts on the matter. And Tim hit on something, um, almost a nice little segue about planning things in advance because I – I, I like where we're going with this next step with this episode. So let's head over to the topic of the week. All right, everybody, uh, before we get going with the main topic, it has fallen on our collective shoulders to kind of issue. I don't want to say a public service announcement, but maybe just tell you what we're going to do here tonight. Um, we're going to talk about the history of splash mountain and, I don't know if there's ever a right time to talk or to speak about Splash Mountain's origins. And I certainly don't know if now is the right time. I certainly don't know if there ever was a time in the last 70 weeks that was the right time. But what I will tell you is what we're going to get into with Song of the South, what we're going to get into with Splash Mountain, we will do our best to to give you facts uh, from what we know, from what we've seen and tell you what song of the South is and not necessarily lead you to conclusions on what you think song of the South was, is, or represents. Um, I don't know that it will be easy to listen to at times, but we'll do our best to keep it as conversational and, 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 openly dialogued as we can. Um, we would really love any feedback that any of you have on this episode, uh, and you can reach out to any of us, and, and I think you all know how to reach out to us at this point. So uh, with that, if Tim and Andrew are, are ready to go, I think we're going to go into the history of Splash Mountain, and then we're going to talk about what Splash Mountain itself means to us, and then what the future holds for Splash Mountain. So, Tim, Andrew, floor is yours if you guys have anything to add. Tim, go ahead. Uh, oh. uh, yeah, I, I'm good. Let's let's get right on to this uh, amazing in. Tony Batcher and Michael Eisner story. Yeah. So, before we get there, we should mention we did, we did leave the biggest news point out of the news this week, and Disney kind of forced our hand. We had some other plans to do a different episode this week. Uh, right up until what guys Thursday afternoon I think, yeah. and yep, we said Thursday you know we afternoon. we gotta we're gonna do Splash Mountain because um, Disney has announced that they are changing Splash Mountain from Song of the South uh, based characters uh, to Princess and the Frog, uh, which um, I think we're gonna get into in a little bit how we feel about that. Um, so really, Tim, that was what I was saying about your segue to this point. Um, Things are always changing. Things are always in in planning. Uh, how far in advance was this plan made? I don't think we will ever know the truth. Uh, but it's very interesting. I'm very excited about the changes coming. I know, Andrew, you're excited. Tim, you're excited. So let's start at the beginning with Tony Baxter, uh, probably second only to Joe Rohde in terms of people we have to protect, and Michael <laughs> Eisner, who probably is third on that list of people we need to protect. Um, 
obviously, just give you this context, Tony Baxter, um, one of the great Imagineers of all time. He did retire from his full-time position uh, and became a part-time advisor in 2013. Served with the company for 47 years, was with the company, and he has um, kind of overseen the construction of some of the, the biggest attractions that any of us have ever been on. Uh, Journey into Imagination, the original. Uh, Star Tours, the Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones Adventure out in California. Um, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. And... Of course, Splash Mountain. Um, the Splash Mountain story in particular is really interesting because it was actually Dick Nunes, uh, who was the former chairman of, of Walt Disney Attractions, who insisted that the Imagineers create a log flume ride for Disneyland. And the Imagineers didn't want that. They, they thought it was too uh, too standard. It, it, there wasn't much they could do to doctor it up, which if we've all been on Splash Mountain at this point, we know... Man, they were wrong about not being able to doctor up a flume. Mm -hmm. So before we go further here, Drew, obviously, you're a Baxter guy. Tim, you're a Baxter guy. This guy has been the architect of our Disney dreams and memories um, for 47 years. I mean, the attractions that we know and love, that we grew up with, and, and just Journey into Imagination and Star Tours stick out to me as two rides that are so creatively unique when they first arrived this guy's on a different intellectual plane than a lot of people <laughs> uh, what did these rides mean to you guys growing up with journey into imagination and star tours those two rides specifically you know i think i think in general um and i know even myself growing up and really not till of late uh last few years that i really started to to think about these things in, in my previous trips right so when people go to these amusement parts and um you know, a lot of the times they're just looking at standard rides. Like if you go to a Six Flags or Bush Gardens, or you have your your engineers behind this, right? But I think what Disney does amazingly, which everyone will agree with, is this Imagineering where they combine these two totally different things of engineering and imagination, right? Imagineering. So to, to, to overlook those things, sometimes you take it for granted where when you're walking through um, – let's say, you know, your your laboratory of journey to imagination and you're going through this ride. Like, this was created by, uh, you know, in this case, uh, Tony Baxter. And I mean, God bless him, what you said, Bob, to just come up with this and, and yeah. not only to come up with an idea. It's, it's one thing to come up with an idea, but then to make it functionally work. It's, it's mm -hmm. at a different level. And I think people do take that for granted at times. And, and, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Mm -hmm. I just don't think they understand or see. And I think like the Imagineering story and all these new documentaries, the, the making mm -hmm. of Frozen 2 just came out. I think these are starting to open up to people the amount of people, the amount of effort that goes into these. And for me, I, I looked at these details. And, you know, now that you've been on rides like Splash Mountain 100 times, you know, mm -hmm. every time I go on there, you make an effort to try to find something new and and and. and challenge that imagineer on why they did something in your head right mm -hmm. so you know when you're going through a ride like why did they place you know Br'er rabbit over here or or Br'er fox over there and you know how did they make the mechanical portion of that work you know was it was it there a reason they use it forced perspective so 
you know, you really start thinking about this stuff. And, and maybe that's just me from that architectural engineer and mindset of like, how did and why does it work the way it works? And um, I, I challenge every listener out there, and that's not to go to Disney, just to, to maybe just pick one ride um, throughout that trip and just say, let me let me approach it this way, because it, it changes your mind. And then it changes the way I think you experience that ride in a whole new level. Mm hmm. Yeah, now, Tim, specifically, the reason I chose those two rides to highlight is to highlight the differences between uh, Andrew's favorite, like, IP version rides and then original concept rides. And you look at Journey into Imagination, some would argue that original incarnation of that ride is perhaps the greatest dark ride ever conceived. And Star Tours taking known a known commodity and making it something... Uh, entirely engrossing to the everyday park goer. Um, it really shows his his birth of, of knowledge, his his breadth of knowledge that that he has, and, and understanding the concepts of, of theme park attractions as a whole. Um, what are your thoughts on Tony Baxter? I mean, yeah, Star Tours was huge. I, I grew up as a huge Star Wars fan as a kid, so just like that ride, the way that it takes a motion simulator which honestly you could find a motion simulator at the time when i was a kid malls had them you know mm -hmm. uh, and you can find them at any theme park museum but just the the storyline behind it and the way it's presented that it puts you in as an observer but also a participant in a, your own star wars story which is just so cool and blew me away and it still is just as cool you know 25 years later and then yeah as you said uh Journey into Imagination, not the current version at all, but the original mm -hmm. version was, you know, the perfect future world ride. And it was it now feels almost IP based because Figment is so synonymous with future mm -hmm. world and Epcot. But it, it, it just was the perfect future world ride and not to undersell it. And I think maybe this might just be because it's fresher in my mind. But the Indiana Jones adventure, I'd never got to experience um, as a kid because I never did Disneyland. Mm -hmm. Um or I did, but not that ride, but I did that this summer um, or this winter at, at in Tokyo, and it's exactly the same ride as over on the West Coast. And that is just so cool because it, it, it's like a dark ride, but also thrilling and adult and not what you think of for a dark ride. And it still uses only practical effects and all that stuff. So just really a visionary of Imagineering and not – greater than like Joe Rody and some of the other guys, but he just was doing it first and doing it on a level where these were transcending the rides that mm -hmm. other theme parks had. The, the Tony Baxter rides were all things that you were not going to find at a Six Flags, at a Busch Gardens, or even a Universal mm -hmm. Studios. You know, mm -hmm. everybody else was playing catch up to the sort of work that he was doing in that era, and they wouldn't catch up for decades. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because you, you use the word transcendent on his attractions and we've clearly, I think, hammered the point here that the guy is uh, uh, an imaginative genius, an intellectual, an intellectual for this type of stuff that, that borderlines an all-time great. He's in traffic driving to work one day and he's got this order from Dick Nunes that they want to do a log flume. And he says, well, you know, we got America Sings closing up soon. Uh, you know, we we got Song of the South from, from back in the 40s. I mean, I guess we could bring some of the animatronics. 
from from <laughs> America Sings, and we could reskin them as Brer Fox and Brer Rabbit and Brer Bear, and yeah, we could make the zippity doo dah river run. Guys in LA traffic, for Christ's sakes. If I'm in LA traffic, I gotta be honest with you. I'm white knuckle, baby. I'm like, this sucks. This is unbelievable. <laughs> this guy, what a flash of genius, as it were, to borrow the phrase, a flash of genius for him to be sitting in a car on the way to work just saying, how can we make it better? And that right there, I think, encapsulates the thinker that is required to come up with something like splash mountain that is icon that is as iconic as it is and as the rides are as iconic as they are so it's interesting i have a question in the back that people want to know what the hell america sings is boy are you in for a treat because (laughs) america sings we're gonna get to in a minute is is one of the criminally no no it is criminally underrated criminally overrated it is just like criminally forgotten little gems of Disneyland. And I think the significance of what it replaced is even more mind-blowing when we get there. But first, there's another man that is important to this story that isn't named Tony Baxter. Um, That man is Michael Eisner, a man that we have talked about uh, ad nauseum, some would say, on this podcast. We've given Michael Eisner his due, uh, perhaps more than any other Disney podcast, and I'm not trying to pump our tires there. Uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts and uh, he does not get favorable, favorable reviews in a lot of the circles uh, of Disney uh, commentators. And I think we have been more than fair with our criticisms of Michael Eisner and our praise of Michael Eisner. And I'm going to let Andrew tell a little story here because it was Michael Eisner's insistence that the word splash be included (laughs) On uh, this attraction, you know, so I I, I, I love Eisner. I, I I do. Um, so it's funny if you don't know. Again, he was one of the CEOs at Disney. Um, mm-hmm. and his his history before Disney was a big time. You know, ABC and yeah. um he had and Paramount, Paramount for a Paramount. while. Yeah. He was a big he was a big film producer type guy, right? And so he had that in his bones. So during this time, um, over um. Disney decided to start branching off to make these other films, right? Because that was Eisner's kind of started wanting to do this as well. And um, so he started getting into this more of a live action adult entertainment. And, and, and I mean that, like, you know, the PG to PG-13 films that Disney never was really um, was really doing. So yeah. he, he kind of went along. What did he, t- what did he start? Touchstone, was it? Uh, Touchstone and Hollywood Pictures. So Hollywood yep, so- Pictures and Touchstone were the two... Right. We're not necessarily adult arms, like you said, but the more uh, sophisticated mature. stories, the more Correct. mature yeah, stories yeah. that they were, we're going to tell. R movies or anything. It, mm-hmm. just, it wasn't. It didn't fit the Walt Disney, you know, yep. company really at the time. So he, during this time in the mid '80s, um, their first film that they came out with was called Splash, and it, <laughs> it was a it was a fantasy romantic comedy uh, directed by Ron Howard. I mean, they had. Um, Tom Hanks in it, right? And it had John Candy. It, it had um, who was the chick? Um, it was um, 
doesn't matter. I don't know. I just I just the know they is, edited her bum. They edited her bum <laughs> out of the Disney Plus version of the movie. The point was is it's about Tom Hanks falls in love with a mermaid. Spoiler alert. And it was just called Splash. And at the time, he's trying to just build his brand, his name for the Walt Disney Company and these new um, Touchstone Pictures. So when when uh, Baxter came to him and said, you know. Well, you know, Bob, let me let me stop there because I know there's a little bit it, there, there's a little bit that happens right before right. it was not, it was Daryl Hannah by the way. I Darryl was just Hannah. about to say it for the <laughs> listeners. It was Daryl Hannah. Daryl <laughs> Hannah, yes. Um, so so why don't you? We'll come back to that and finish that story. But because this was this was his his meanwhile this happening, but Splash Mountain or 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 whatever Zippity Doodah River Zippity Run. River Run. Yep. Was it always in the spotlight, Bob? So how did it get into the spotlight, and then how did it become Splash Mountain as we know it today? So the issues here were that Frank Wells and Michael Eisner went on a tour of WDI, or Walt Disney Imagineering, when they took over the company in 84. And they went to some presentations and, and uh, championed, you know, they had different attractions championed by senior Imagineers, and uh, Baxter had had pushed Splash Mountain. Because, again, you got to understand the Splash Mountain – like Tim alluded to with how long things are in, in production, quote unquote, at WDI, it, it was in progress before Eisner and Wells got there. So this was a project that Baxter had been working on uh, for a few years at this point under previous regimes. So it was one of those things that when when Eisner toured, um, his he brought his 14-year-old son Breck along because he didn't really know the first thing about amusement park attractions it's interesting uh it's an interesting case study when you hire a guy like michael eisner to run your company uh when when he unequivocally has no idea about theme parks at this point in his life i mean Mm -hmm. he would go on to be one of the great innovators in disney parks and you owe a lot of what you see at disney parks to michael eisner's regime Uh, they had some missteps no doubt about it but but let's not really get into what happened in paris or anything like that it's that's another conversation for another day so he brought Breck with him. They were touring, and Breck kept going to the back of the room and wandered over to the Splash Mountain model. And and Eisner kept saying, hey, Breck, what are you looking at? And Breck, you know, this looks really cool. And so Eisner's thought process is, hey, if my 14-year-old son likes this, what is the issue with the Disney brand in 1984 is that they don't talk to that demographic. They don't speak to that demographic in a way that is compelling and that makes that demographic want to go see Disney movies, that wants to go to Disney parks. It was considered a very kiddie company, a very family company, but not friendly enough to the teens. Uh, Tim kind of covered some of this with the uh, great pride Random House and Mouse in what the situation was like uh, back then. In Again, you probably wouldn't hear it unless you knew the story, uh, but knowing the story that Tim told, I will tell you that a lot of, of what came in the late 80s and early 90s at Disney was you owe Breck Eisner a little bit of something here be, mm-hmm. for his love of the Splash Mountain model. Yep. So I think that's a little bit reductive just because one of Eisner may have not known theme parks at that time, but he came in knowing that his goal for Disneyland at that time was to try to figure out how to sell it off of that. This is a kiddie park slash family park into we need to get Southern California teens 
to want their parents to buy them annual passes so they could come hang out here in the summer and on the weekends when they don't have school and why it just didn't make sense to him why that wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. And this was really the, the genesis of him figuring out how to reorient that uh, that image for for the park at that time. Mm hmm. So, I mean, yeah, at the end of that, they, they go through their go through their meetings and they green light Splash Mountain. I mean, basically, Eisner's logic here is, listen, you have Big Thunder, you've got Space Mountain, you've got Big Thunder Mountain. It's a mountain. There's a big splash at the end. It's Splash Mountain. And ultimately, as much as Baxter and the rest of the Imagineers didn't love the idea of, I don't know, tying it to Splash, <laughs> it, it, it makes a ton of sense to call it Splash Mountain 35 years later. It makes a ton of sense to call it Splash Mountain. It does. Uh, but ultimately, when the boss says, listen, it's Splash Mountain, you want your project greenlit? I think that's something you give there. Um, and I, I think that it's it's something that outside of Song of the South Log Flume Ride or the zippity doo River Run, I, I think that Splash Mountain works. I'm kind of into the zippity River Run. <laughs> yeah, I actually do like that name. Yeah. Uh, but it's just funny. Every time you guys go back down there, make a little fun comment, act like the smarty pants, say, hey, did you know this is kind of named after a 1984 Tom Hanks film? Um, and little did you know that it, that all the characters really are from Song of the South. I think it's it's a cool little story. Um, and I think that's what we wanted to share it with you guys. It's not the most fascinating story, but there's, there's millions of stories like this throughout Disney World yeah, and that's Disneyland. That's kind of but, like the Reader's Digest version of how, song, how Splash Mountain became a thing. Well, I'd say it's more of a Time Magazine article there. We spent 30 minutes on that sucker. <laughs> Okay, that's fair. So <laughs> there's another question in the back, a follow-up to the America Sings issue. So America Sings was an attraction at Disneyland from 1974 to 1988. It actually replaced Disneyland's version of the Carousel of Progress. Seems blasphemous in, in hindsight that this is the attraction, a, a temporary, <laughs> designed-to-be-temporary attraction. It was for the bicentennial of the com- of the country that – this attraction is the one that replaces the Carousel of Progress. It, it is really, really incredible. Um, but why did that have to go? Well, it had to go because ultimately when you celebrate the Bicentennial for 12 years, it effectively doesn't celebrate tomorrow in any way at that point. So uh, once the Bicentennial celebrations were over, everything kind of became misplaced. And they started using they, – they stripped – the skins, quote-unquote, off of these animatronics and repurpose them. Um, Disneyland fans, um, looking at you, John Blanco, um, you have a significantly higher number of animatronics in your Splash Mountain version than we do on this coast uh, because of that. Uh, because America Sings, they, they repurpose so many of them. Uh, and then, Andrew, did you know that America Sings, when it finally closed in 1988... It sat vacant for almost 10 years. I did not, Pop. So good news, folks. They haven't been doing they, – they haven't just been doing this to us now. It's the real deal. They've been screwing with attractions for decades, and ultimately it was replaced by Interventions in 1998, uh, kind of a copy of the Epcot attraction. And then – uh, it became Star Wars Launch Bay in 2015, uh, which I gotta think is probably on its last legs as well. Um, once I mean, I, I mean, once all of this passes and you can kind of start pumping money back into the parks, B- 
because with with Galaxy's Edge, I, I don't know why you need Launch Bay anymore. Uh, that's just me. I also feel that way about the studio's version of Launch Bay. It's taking up valuable real estate. Get it the hell out of there. Another story of another day. If you guys want to do further reading on Tony Baxter, on Michael Eisner, on Disney Mountains in general, I would recommend Jason Sorrell's book, The Disney Mountains Imagineering at Its Peak, Michael Eisner's Work in Progress, or The Imagineers, Walt Disney Imagineering, a behind-the-scenes look at making the magic real. All three of those books are excellent reads uh, for that story and to expand on, on those stories. And there's quite a bit about Tony Baxter and all of them. Uh, and obviously the Michael Eisner work in progress book is specifically written by Michael Eisner. So it is all about him. Uh, it's a good read. Tim, I, I need owe to you that, read one, that one. one. I need so, to read that one. Um, good so now you've heard us throw on America sings. We gave you a, a, a quick, you know, blurb recap of what it was. Uh, we've given you Tony Baxter and Michael Eisner. Um, now we get into the very problematic song of the South in this instance, um, it was a 1946 uh, live-action animated uh, musical film produced by Walt Disney and released by RKO Radio Pictures. Uh, it is based on a collection of Uncle Remus stories as adapted by Joel Chandler Harris, and it does star the legendary James Basket as Uncle Remus. Um, the film does take place in, southern, in the southern United States, in Georgia, during the Reconstruction era um, a period of American history after the end of the American civil war and after the abolition of slavery um, to kind of set the context here that is never explicitly stated at any point in the film, which was one of the um, issues with the film up front. Uh, the story does follow a seven-year-old Johnny played by Bobby Driscoll, uh, who is visiting his grandmother's plantation for an extended stay uh, Johnny becomes best friends uh, with Uncle Remus, uh, who is one of the workers on the plantation, and takes joy in hearing his tales about the adventures of Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Fox, and Br'er Bear. Uh, Johnny learns from the stories how to cope with the challenges he is experiencing while living on the plantation. Uh, and Tim, believe it or not, in 2003, the Online Film Critics <laughs> Society ranked this film as the 67th greatest animated film of all time. Boys, a lot to unpack about this film before we get into characters and music and the controversies surrounding it. I watched this film yesterday. Um, I, I have a bootleg copy that I went to CVS and got a prepaid Visa card for because that's how shady the website looked when I when I purchased it a few years ago. I didn't want to put my credit card information <laughs> is, in there. That is a great uh, fun fact. So, um, <laughs> is it, it is true? not. <laughs> that's a hundred percent true story hundred percent true story i went and got a 25 dollar visa gift card and paid for with paid for this movie with a visa gift card that's, that's this is the lengths that bob goes for you listeners just yeah. just you know um uh. i will tell you that this movie to me as a movie itself is kind of a drag it's like 93 94 minutes or so and i just it's a chore to sit through, and I know Andrew, you have my copy of it, and Tim, you've watched some some clips and highlights of the film as well. Oh no, I, I watched the whole film back in college. It's it's no, not no, good. I, but, but, but like you didn't watch it yesterday. No, I did not. But it, it's so I will grant it that the animated sequences, for all of their faults, are actually pretty well done. They're not bad. 
And, and, but, and I believe it's only one third of the movie is animated, correct? Uh, yeah, it's three segments. Again, yep. I think, it, yeah, it's three segments, but I, I think it is about, uh, I want to say it was 15 to 20 minutes of animation, maybe, give or take. Yep. Um, I'd have to do the And I think there was reasons there. behind that. It needed to be one third to be considered animated film. And I, to, mm-hmm. to, your, to your beautiful point of the online film credit society mm-hmm. um, for animated right. films. Listen, by the way, Tim did some research. The OFCS is no joke. Uh, they are the, they are a legitimate business equal to the online version of pretty much the Academy or the Hollywood Foreign Press, for lack of a better term. So for them to rank this movie as the 67th greatest animated film of all time, uh, it's a legit list. It, it's not us saying that it's not like we just said oh let's pull out of a hat yeah that's where it belongs it there was no spreadsheet of silliness for that i'm sure maybe there was who knows hey, you know there's been a lot of good animated films uh, since then i wonder if it would uh hold there its have. weight and now again that was in 2003 so let's get back the story itself guys <laughs> is actually kind of a sweet story with uncle remus kind of parabolizing to johnny the life lessons um, that Johnny's father probably should have done. And it's, it's about Johnny's experiences on the plantation, living there for the extended stay. Uh, it's very, very gone with the windy in terms of like the settings and the sets. Um, so it, you got to keep in mind, this movie was came in 1946. So it isn't necessarily the most groundbreaking effects wise. Um, but the movie itself the story is okay. It's it's okay. And that's – Tim, you said you saw it in college. You, you are an intelligent guy. You've got opinions on a lot of things, as do I, as does Andrew. And Andrew's done a lot of going first here. So I'm going to open the floor to you first, Tim, and you can tell us your thoughts on just the film as a film, uh, excluding, you know, obviously the music and the controversies, which we'll get into in a second. I mean, I – it's it's a pretty rote by the numbers film, um, not as much a controversy, but just the relationship between Johnny and Uncle Remus on its face is problematic because of how it's presented. Um, uh, don't want to come off as controversial language, but it, it, it's very much a, a archetype in filmmaking um, called the Magical Negro, where um, a, a black man um, of not high social stature acts as almost a fairy godmother character to a white character, um, which in and of itself is a problematic trope that was much more common um, in those times, the 1940s and before, but we still see today. So even on its face, it's not great in that department. Um, And also the fact that it, does not make it clear whatsoever that the film is taking place during the reconstruction and not pre-civil war that there's no indication whatsoever that that is uh what's happening so Mm -hmm. since it is taking place in the deep south um it's not clear if these are slaves or free people that's yep yep so so i'll say bob from like from watching the film point of view right um it is an old film and I, I, I feel like there's old films that actually hold up. And mm-hmm. I feel like this one does not hold up as well as some other ones. For example, my, my daughter Zoe has been on this weird, weird craze of watching Wizard of Oz. Um, 
Yeah, all time classic that it presents is, itself it, at the problems. It, it, my, my my point is, and I don't want to compare films, but when I when I when I sit down for an entertainment value, mm-hmm. Wizard of Oz still kind of holds up, and and I feel like this movie does show its age. Um, I feel like the animated scenes show its age and you know this at the time was a new technology right of kind of um adding this animation to live action and it's not that it doesn't work because it, it works through the storytelling um but it is a and i think you already alluded to this earlier it's a difficult movie to get through 90 minutes of and that's just that's just the fact um it, it, it is it's 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 definitely no, it, it's interesting you use the word difficult because we don't necessarily uh, again, the the context of the film as just a straight movie going experience, mm-hmm. taking everything out of it, just watching the movie from second one to minute mm-hmm. ninety three, it it is a slog of a movie. It is slow. Well, well and, and like you said earlier too, like my kids, uh, they wanted to watch Wizard of Oz for God mm-hmm. knows why, but that's a great what I what I what I tried to get them to watch on the South, and I even tried to sell them on like, hey, listen, these are the the characters from Splash mm-hmm. Mountain. You guys love that ride, and they looked at the DVD case, and they looked at me, and I tried to explain it to them that it's like, nah, you know, you did explain watch- that that Uncle Bubba bought that bootleg, right? Like that's with why the, the cover looked like it did. a gift card. <laughs> I'll have to try that that approach again, but um, that's my biggest my biggest gripe with with watching it from the movie point of view is it mm-hmm. it does have issues holding up, yeah. um, among other some of the other classics. It certainly it certainly does, and I think for the time period that Disney put this out, I want to say that the mid forties uh, that might have been what uh, fun and fancy free and like melody time those anthology pictures. Uh, because so much of their their time spent in the early 40s and mid 40s were tied up in in World War II's uh, work that they did with uh, propaganda pieces. So, I, you know, I mean, I think this was you know um, an interesting film to say the least. And I think if you haven't seen it, um, by all means, we haven't done much to sell you on the idea of seeing this movie. <laughs> but I, I think for you to to appreciate any part of the conversation we're going to have in the next 10 minutes um i i think you need to watch it to appreciate the issues and why things are changing um certainly there are several controversies with song of the south um tim alluded to probably the most i don't want to say easily identifiable um but certainly one that on its surface when you see it and how it's portrayed, it, it can give the impression that it isn't an appropriate relationship in the way that the way that the black and white characters interact with one another and their general attitudes toward one towards one another. Uh, Tim is absolutely right when he he talks about the the fairy godmother esque characters of Uncle Remus in the sense of, of how he tells the stories and, and what he tells the stories with. Um, you know, there's obviously, like Tim said also, and like we mentioned in the beginning, uh, there's never uh, an, identifi- an identifying point that it tells you this happens uh, post-Civil War, that this is Reconstruction-era South, uh, especially when you're referring to um, Georgia, presumably where it's set on this plantation, uh, you really wouldn't know that this is post-Civil War uh, unless we told you ahead of time that, listen, this is set post-Civil War 
and these are free people that are getting paid. Um, there's uh, animated wise, uh, animation wise, there's uh, one particular scene that stands out, um, and it's actually in the ride uh, at a certain in a mm-hmm. certain way. Um, so so the tar baby sequence of the film um, to fully give you to 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 historicalize and contextualize what that is is uh Br- Br- fox um dresses up a a big you know a, a little sack of tar as it were for lack of a better term puts a coat on him puts a hat on him gives him some eyes gives him uh, a pipe uh, i think he actually skins brer bear's ass uh to give him hair at one point too um so He's sitting on the side of the road, the tar baby sitting on the side of the road, and, and Br'er Rabbit is hopping by and says, how do you do? And the tar baby also doesn't answer, so Br'er Rabbit backs up and says, hey, I said, how do you do? And clearly the context here in that instance is that Br'er Rabbit is under the impression that this is a black child sitting on the side of the road that is being disrespectful to him. Uh, take that what you will. That is this the sequence. Uh, Br'er Rabbit then punches the tar baby, and as we all know, with hot tar, you you get stuck in hot tar. That's how they capture him in the movie uh, to kind of cook him for another uh, enviable scene of rabbit stew, which presents its own sets of problems uh, when they cut to the plantation workers around a campfire enjoying a rabbit stew. Needless to say. There's a lot wrong with the film. There's a lot wrong with those scenes in particular. And why we mention the ride with that is because in the ride, uh, there is uh, an instance uh, at the lift hill on the main lift hill before the big drop that Br'er Rabbit is caught. He is caught in honey in a, in a beehive. Um, so it, it is obviously cleaned up for the attraction uh, as opposed to the film. Uh, I can only imagine that if they had brought that to the film directly, the ride wouldn't have gone off the drawing board, to be honest with you. Um, they wouldn't have put the ride there. So uh, it's interesting. Uh, those are, you know, the the real things that stuck out to me watching the film again. Um, the relationships, Tim, like you said, are problematic. The lack of identifying that it is Reconstruction Era South is problematic. The tar baby scene is problematic. Um, it, all of it as a whole to be clear the tar baby scene specifically is the most outright and on its face horrifically racist scene correct. in the entire movie correct there's and really no defending that specific scene in the movie no and I, I i don't think again and i think like we said earlier i don't know that we're trying to defend anything here we're just kind of giving you this mm-hmm. is the a b and c of this movie and why there is controversy surrounding Splash Mountain, why there is controversy surrounding Song of the South, and why Bob Iger, uh, despite every God-blessed shareholder meeting he goes to, Correct. somebody asks him, when is Song of the South coming out of the vault? And inevitably his answer is, it's not coming out of the vault. Then yep. you get Disney+. Plus. Hey, is this going to be on here with a warning? No, it's not coming out of the <laughs> well, vault, guys. I mean, what, what benefit does disney gain by putting a disney plus zero 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 benefit to them zero putting the film out in any way that is accessible to the general public that is zero absolutely true you're not going to go gain 10 million subscribers at disney plus it's zero benefit it's only going to create drama it's going to create just yeah there's there's so i agree i mean it is literally brought up 
every single stakeholder meeting. Yeah, everyone. And I, I'm going to tell you that Bob Shapik, Chapek, is going to have the same issues uh, going forward with this film and until, uh, you know, they finally just, you know, listen, okay, I don't we want to make this about race relations and everything. So there was a petition around to change Splash Mountain to Princess and the Frog. Disney came out and said, listen, it's been in the works for a while. We got to take my face value. That's their official statement is yep. that we're going to change it. This is, we're going to change it on the East coast and the West coast. We're going to change it to a Mardi Gras party with Lewis and, and Tiana. And that's, that's going to be it. The next day, there was a petition with 50,000 <laughs> signatures to keep it as these characters, which, which was just mind blowing to me, you know, because it, it how is. many of the people that sign that petition one, have seen Song of the South. Two, even know what the hell they're signing when they say, oh, we'll keep the characters there. I'm as big a fan of the Br'er family of characters as you will you find on this podcast, I think, potentially, and potentially more. And the film itself isn't good. It's trash. There's no defending it. I love the characters. I think the stories that they tell... I actually own a copy of the... It was a, a reprinted copy of Joel Chandler Harris's Uncle Remus stories. They're excellent stories. They're great parables, like I said, to Tim offline. Uh, they're like, you know, Aesop fables, stuff like that. But this, and, and, and you know what, Jordana's not here tonight, but her husband posted something very poignant on the Ohana. He said, listen, if there's one person uncomfortable with that at Disney, then it needs to change. I mean, it, it's unfortunate that this is, you know, what we have to defend this type of take. I mean, it just, it, it seems very easy to me to put another IP in that attraction and call it a day. Tim, you're, you're not a big cancel culture guy. I know that. But you yourself have said, listen, you have championed this. You love this idea of changing the attraction. And you love the idea of never having Song of the South see the light of day in any official release. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to defend people petitioning to keep it the way it is, but I think you hit on a really important point. Um, I think I've seen this discourse a ton on this. I think a bunch of people don't realize that Splash Mountain is actually an IP ride. I no. think I've seen a ton of people saying, oh, just what we need, more IPs in the parks. People, for some reason, think having IPs in the parks is the worst thing possible. And uh, I think it's just been so buried in the history of Disney and rightfully so that people don't even realize that these are not original characters or characters adopted from these mm -hmm. fables onto Splash Mountain. And in fact, it's just an IP from a Disney movie that Disney would prefer to forget and really just used because they had a bunch of animatronic animals correct. sitting around in storage that they needed to use someplace. <laughs> that is correct. So, so Drew, I, I know that you, have we've talked offline about the thoughts you have i think the three of us and i i don't want to speak for jordana on the matter but i will wholeheartedly say that she shares the same stance that we do on this topic um yeah so drew i want to talk about the cast for a second because we've kind of demonized this film a little bit and we've kind of given it a hard time but i i, I do want to talk about some of the characters in the cast 
because if you look at James Basket, he won an honorary Academy Award for this uh, for this film. Uh, Bobby Driscoll. Uh, he, if you don't know the Bobby Driscoll story, it, it's depressing as hell. It it didn't end well for anybody, um, but I mean he was he was in so dear to my heart in Treasure Island. He was one of the the best known uh, you know kind of younger Disney actors they had. He actually, for Andrew's reference point, uh, provided the voice of the title role in Peter Pan. Uh, he received an Academy uh, Juvenile Award for Outstanding Performances uh, in two feature films from 1949 in So Dear to My Heart and The Window. Uh, so Dear to My Heart, probably the spiritual cousin of Song of the South. Um, you look at Glenn Leedy, who plays Toby in the film, which is the the the, the young the young black boy uh, that kind of befriends Johnny and Ginny in the film. This was his only film role ever. Stunning to me. Um, then you had Luana uh, Luana Patton, who played Ginny. Uh, this was um, she also you know she appeared as Bobby's sister uh, as Bobby Driscoll's sister in So Dear to My Heart as well. Uh, she was hired by Walt Disney herself for this role. Uh, it's crazy. But but really, the character I want to talk about is one that we haven't touched on yet. Uh, is Auntie Tempe. Uh, Hattie McDaniel. Um, she's something of a lightning rod for controversy herself. Um, she is an American actress, singer, songwriter, comedian. Uh, best known for her role as Mammy in Gone with the Wind. Um, she won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. And as a favor to the studio, because think about this, uh, this uh, Gone with the Wicked on 1939. Mm. As a favor to the studio, wherever they had the, the Oscars that year, whatever hotel they had her in, they allowed Hattie McDaniel to sit at a table off to the side to allow her to be in the... And you know what? She became the first African-American to win an Oscar that year. Just so we can contextualize the time frame that we're in and, and the segregation that we're in here. Um, as her fame grew, McDaniel did face criticism from several members of the black community, including the NAACP. Uh, they complained that Hollywood stereotypes not only restricted black, act, black, black actors to servant roles, but often portrayed them as lazy, dim-witted, satisfied with lowly positions or violent. Um, some even attacked her for being an Uncle Tom. Uh, which is probably the worst thing you could probably do, um, or, or one of the worst things you could probably say, which you know would make pretty much make her an allower or an enabler of the studio system in that instance. Um, she had this to say on those bases, though, and, and I really – the balls on this woman, I'm proud of her for this because she said, listen, why should I complain about making $700 a week playing a maid if I didn't – I'd be making $7 a week being one mm. um it's it's interesting that and that's a direct quote from hattie mcdaniel that's nothing that i'm paraphrasing there because I, I do want to be clear that is her answer to people complaining about her taking the roles she did um if those are the roles that she was offered and those are the roles she took and She's got hundred dollars a week playing a maid, and she's winning Oscars for her performances. Is that not better for for that mm -hmm. community, for them to see someone in that position that is winning Oscars, 
that is sitting at the Oscars, despite the favor being given to the studio, which seems insane to me. But again, I can I, I don't want to speak from a point of, of of understanding that concept because I've never lived in that type of environment. But Tim, is her is her comment about making Sarah Alls be playing a maid as opposed to Seven being one? Is that a fair – and she was kind of a firebrand to be honest. She was a lightning rod anyway. But is that a fair statement on her end? I mean, obviously good for her. Like, go out and get it. Uh, but at the same time, you do have to look at the time. Is it overall helpful to per- play roles and accept roles as written that perpetuate – harmful stereotypes now we are talking about a period long before the civil rights era but it is still questionable if 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 that is overall good to to continue to Mm -hmm. take on roles that reinforce negative stereotypes about a whole group of people who at that time are being horrifically oppressed Mm -hmm. under um, jim crow so even that is not without controversy and i don't think you can can unilaterally say, and it's certainly not for the three of us to unilaterally say that that, that it's for the overall good. Right. So it is interesting because she also, believe it or not, I dug this little nugget up. She actually hired one of the only white agents in Hollywood that would work with, with black actors. Um, so I, I do, there's a lot to Hattie McDaniel that, uh, if you'd like to do some extensive reading on Hattie McDaniel, she was quite, um, Quite a character. She was apolitical. She never really got involved with politics, uh, despite many asking her to. I mean, eventually she did join um, several uh, African-American film groups and and did kind of become uh, a figurehead, as it were, in that in that area and and kind of led to to better uh, situations in in the film business. And again, better, relatively speaking, uh, compared to what they were up against. Um, but you know, she, I, I found her to be really an interesting study when I was doing the research here and the fact that she was the first African American to win an Oscar and they still treated her like absolute uh, trash and sat her in the corner of the room off to the side. So she wouldn't be seen. It's just, it, it's really, it's, 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 it's terrible to think about. Um, now we go to Andrew's favorite character, uh, Br'er Rabbit. And uh, he was voiced by Johnny Lee, an American singer, dancer, and actor, most well-known for voicing this role. And most of his career was spent in vaudeville, uh, but he also performed in other motion pictures and uh, on recordings and in television. He did release uh, a couple records, uh, You Can't Lose a Broken Heart, uh, which in July 1949. Backup vocals by the Ebonairs, uh, Lee also starred in an all-black musical called Sugar Hill in 1949 at the Los Palmas Theater in California. Drew, I know you're a big Johnny Lee guy, a big <laughs> Br'er Rabbit guy. What do you got for me? Well, so uh, I'll tell you a little fun story if you guys didn't know this. So Johnny Lee, like you said, is a big-time singer. So during the filming of Song of the South, he actually was on tour as well. And over in Europe for one of the scenes, uh, the famous scene actually, when they went to the Laughing Place. So... Um, they needed someone to do some laughs in order to get the, the part, you know, out there for, for Br'er Rabbit. So who do they ask, Bob? No one better than James Basket himself, of um, uh, who plays Uncle Remus, right? So James mm-hmm. Basket actually did the laugh for Br'er mm-hmm. Rabbit in those scenes. And here's, a, here's an even funnier story. That same laugh was so good that Disney decided to archive it 
and use it in the Jungle Book when Mowgli is being tickled by Tate Louie. So it's actually the same laugh, laugh that they use in both films. Um, it, it, it's just a cool little story. Again, a little nitbit that you know you wouldn't typically um, you wouldn't know it. So it, it, it's just it's it's cool to see those types of fun things. Well, it was interesting. Uh, James Basket also voiced Br'er Fox. Uh, so James Basket all over this picture. Uh, Nick Stewart also uh, he was the voice of Br'er Bear. Uh, he is one of the few voice actors that actually took on the role in the film and in the attraction. So when you hear Br'er Bear speak in Splash Mountain, that is Nick Stewart, who voiced the original character in the film. Uh, then you had Roy Glenn in an uncredited role as Br'er Fog, Br'er Frog, who uh, has a um, couple scenes in the in the attraction. And then Clarence Ducky Nash, Tim, was the voice of Little Bluebird on the shoulder uh, pretty much in a whistling form as well. And Mother Possum was voiced by Helen Crozier, and that was also uncredited. Um, just a really dynamite cast. And, and actually, for the time, a very diverse cast uh, when you think about it. Um, so uh, we don't want you to think that uh, it's all bad, it's all good, it's just somewhere in the middle. Uh, but now really, what really Song of the South is known for is probably its music more than anything else. Or specifically, it's, it's I would say, it's its longest lasting legacy we talk about legacy a lot on this show and, and what things mean to people um song of the south gave us i mean if when you wish upon a star is is accepted as the quote-unquote national anthem uh of disney uh if that's the correlation we're drawing then i would say zippity doodah is the america the beautiful equally <laughs> as impressive and probably a better song overall uh to be honest and Zippity Doodah did come here. Uh, nine songs made it into the final film. Zippity Doodah did win an Academy Award. And Andrew, did you know that all but five minutes of this film contained music? And that Incredible. is uh, including the spiritual sung by the Hall Johnson Choir. Uh, and it did feature, like we said, uh, Song of the South specifically. It was a song in the film. Uh, Zippity Doodah, Who Wants to Live Like That? How Do You Do? Let the Rain Pour Down and Everybody Has a Laugh in Place. Um, further reading on controversies surrounding Song of the South, the film Song of the South, uh, some more interesting takes on all things Disney. Um, good friend of the show, if I can say that, even though he's not really a friend of the show. Jim Corcus, uh, he wrote a book, Who's Afraid of Song of the South mm. and Other Disney Controversies. Great read. That's also in read, my yeah. also in my collection. Um a lot of good information in that book. Um, well, I, I, think, people, I, mm-hmm. I think we could start, like, maybe we should start, like, a virtual digital library. Maybe you can rent out books to our Ohana members. <laughs> well, no, T- Tim's got first dibs on most of the books. He's, I, I own a couple of stuff, so. Um, but before we move on to the ride, I want to give Tim and Andrew, I, I've done a lot of speaking about Song of the South right now. I want to give Tim and Andrew a minute or two for them, or if they want three or four minutes, whatever it is, to kind of give their lasting impressions of anything we've talked about to Song of the South, because I, I promise you, after this, we're going to get a little bit happier, a little bit more upbeat, <laughs> and tell you some of our stories with Splash Mountain. So, Drew, go ahead. Yeah, I, you know, I don't have anything, I think, to add. I think you did a great job, Bob, for, for translating um, 
translating the message here. And I think that was our goal of this entire episode for, for this this portion of it really was is to to share the knowledge. A lot of guys out there, a lot of people, a lot of listeners out there, you know, even myself back in the day, we I didn't understand what this this whole controversy was. And and like you said, a lot of people don't understand these are IP characters in a ride that represents a movie from the nineteen forties produced by uh, the Walt Disney Company. So I think you did a great job. I think you did a great job explaining those facts of what the tie-ins are. And I hope that all you listeners kind of understand now and you have a better understanding. And we hope that you guys go off and do your own research on this and, and watch videos if you can get your hands on them and, and really understand what this means and, and the history of it. So I'm glad we could actually do that. Um, so, Tim, you have anything? Yeah, I mean... Also, kind of the same point, if you don't want to do more research on it and you don't want to look up videos, that is also fine. This movie mm. is the definition of a product of its time, um, and its time is kind of over. So uh, it it is what it is, and uh, I haven't made any secret. I am completely fine with Disney moving on from this, uh, but I do think it is important that people understand the context of what they are moving forward from. Uh, and I hope we were able to give that to you. Absolutely. Um, so again, thank you, Tim. And thank you, Bob, for all the amazing breakdown. And again, hope everyone honestly did learn a thing or two. But now let's have some fun. Now let's talk about the actual ride of Splash Mountain itself, as we will miss it. Um, because again, it is a staple of the park and it is a fun, amazing flume ride. If it even it deserves to be called that. Uh, I think it's a lot more than that. So what we're going to do tonight, rather than do like a spotlight on the ride, I want to do something a little bit different. I want to introduce us to this new mini segment called Core Memories. And of course, I'm making that reference back to Inside Out, where a core memory is something that's an everlasting memory that will never go away, that actually will help you impact maybe your life in a certain way. It's so powerful of a memory. So um, who wants to lead us off here and tell us why they love Splash Mountain so much? And you know maybe a, a story or two of when they're when they're when they're visiting. Now now Tim, I know you've had the opportunity to ride this um, all three of them, or you know you said you haven't gone to Disneyland. No, I, I've I've just done Tokyo and Magic Kingdom, which of the three are identical. There's part of Tokyo mm-hmm. that's a mirror of Magic Kingdom, but otherwise yep. it is the closest to Magic Kingdom. So so for you, Tim, um, any solid memories of Splash Mountain uh, that just really linger with you that you'll never forget yeah i mean this is definitely a top magic kingdom ride for me um mm. big big memories for me are my mom is not a thrill ride person at all and her definition of a thrill ride is basically anything that has a drop of any kind anything bigger than pirates so when we went down when i was real young and splash mountain was still pretty new at walt disney world uh, after I wrote it with my aunt and uncle uh, and my father, uh, we convinced my mom to go on it because of the dark ride portion, and she loved it. She hated the drop. Um, she, it's definitely not a ride that she rides every time she's there, but it, it's one of the only thrill rides that we can actually get my mom on. And then probably the best memory I have of the ride is uh, that I think it was probably the same trip. We were down with my aunt and my uncle. And my, my uncle's kind of a prankster, and my dad... Uh, was riding in the front of the log with me, and uh, for some reason he ignored the uh, the idea of uh, 
I was supposed to take his hat off. <laughs> and uh, we hit the big drop, and of course his hat flies off. But my uncle stuck his hand up just at the perfect time and caught the hat. Incredible. So my dad thinks he lost the hat, and we, you know, we go on our day. And then, like, several hours later, my uncle just pops out the hat and goes, Jim, is this your hat? And uh, convinced my dad totally that he, like, found it elsewhere in the park. So that was kind of a funny, huh, that's funny. Uh, experience. And then above and beyond that, it's just one of Rachel and I's favorite ride. Um, last time we were down at Walt Disney World together in July a year ago, uh, we probably rode it, like, six or seven times whenever there wasn't a line or we could get a fast pass. Mm-hmm. And uh, we rode it twice in Tokyo, even though it was January. <laughs> but yeah, just just a, a favorite ride. A lot of good memories for me. Absolutely. Um, and, and again, it definitely is one of those rides that's uh, a must-go on and, and, and amazing. Bob, share some of your core memories of Splash Mountain that you're going to miss. Well, I have a core memory from Boy Meets World, where uh, <laughs> Corey and Sean spend the night uh, in the log of Splash Mountain. It's, uh, it's a lot Classic. of fun. Um, but for me, um, there are probably a few attractions that I could say literally uh, shaped my, my Disney uh, fandom. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one of them. Um, f- for me, uh, the first time I went on it was 1997, which was the uh, 25th anniversary of the ride. It had been about five years. Uh, when we went in 1992, they were building it. Uh, if you want to go back and listen to our Liberty Square and uh, Frontierland episodes, we talk about where the train station was and, and where it moved to and and how the train used to come by the front over the bridge uh, of the of the area. Um, but for me, I, I think back to that to that first trip that I went, I fell in love with Br'er Rabbit, and uh, to this day, he might be at my parents' house now. I don't have him with me now, but this day i own the Br'er rabbit stuffed animal that i have and i always was drawn to the merchandise of of splash mountain and the characters and uh i was in new york with my wife and and we were dating at the time and we went to the big disney store and i got these seven dwarfs riding uh splash mountain one of like the disney whatever the hell series just a figure that's on my on my bureau so the merchandise to me is always stuck with me but but rides, a lot of them are, are new memories, but I'll, I'll start with the oldest one, is when they had e-ride nights, uh, there was a time uh, where Andrew and myself had gone on this attraction. I mean, I gotta say, Andrew, it had to be 15 or 20 times in that one night. Oh, yeah. Uh, be- beautiful night, a little chilly, I probably had a Yukon visor on, and uh, you know, probably cargo shorts and some you know structure t-shirt, as it were. Um, and we couldn't find all the hidden Mickeys and the cast members <laughs> were like mocking us for not knowing where the other hidden Mickey was. And we had our hidden Mickey field guide and we were looking and, and we had our stuff and this was pre, you know, really high tech cell phones. So you had to have the book with you. 2003, I believe it was, Bob. Could have been, I'd have to take a look. I mean, we've been so much together that I, I it could have been that trip and could with chili pepper trip. I think it was a chili pepper trip. That's uh, it's a good trip. We'll tell, that, we'll tell that story another day. Yeah. Uh, but we went on this attraction 15, 20 times. And you'd say, well, how the hell did you go on a log flume 15, 20 times? I mean, I don't know that 
I would change anything about that night. I mean, you're on E-Ride Nights was 15, 20 bucks. You can want all the E-tickets you want. And, and man, we, we literally just, hey, one more time, roll us through, roll us through. And then we just stayed on that. And we finally, 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 there was the final riverboat scene mm-hmm. of the film after the big drop, of the ride, after the big drop, and you come back into the... the the building to go into the the, the disembarking or for us to just say hey one more time through and there's a a mickey mouse hide laying down in the clouds and we andrew i mean we looked at every bit of that ship in the riverboat scene and the crocodiles to our left and the hats and the, the the chickens we could not find that Mickey Mouse daydreaming, and, and to me, it's still one of my favorite uh, yeah. hidden Mickeys uh, out there. Um, and I think, really, for me, before I get into the story about my son, I will tell you that I've always enjoyed the pictures that, that me or you or or my wife have, or, or whatever party I'm with at the time. The 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 attraction photo at this attraction is probably the best attraction photo spot of any ride Uh, it just makes sense to have it where it is it's designed for it and you get some of the great photos on this attraction i mean granted they created a whole website called flash mountain because people started you know (laughs) you know doing other things inappropriately on the pictures uh but really the, the the one core memory now that i have outside of my me going on this ride a, a dozen times a trip with you and with our families and with Fred and, and with everyone else. Um, I, man, when I took Zach on this ride, the first time we went, he, uh, he wanted no part of it. And, and I didn't yeah. really tell him what we were doing when I got him in the line. I said, Oh, come on, we'll go on this. And he walks by and he's like, Oh, I don't know about that. That's pretty high dad and whatever. Yeah. And he didn't know, but we, so the line queue was long. I mean, it, it's, it's built to hold hours of lines. Um, but when we got on the boat. He was petrified tears. That I said, no, sit down. You're going on splash mountain. You know, I, I that's what dads do. You got to do yeah. that. And as soon as the log launched and we were on the boat and you see the little geese, you know, how do you do? Pleased to meet you. Fine, how are you? Whatever he's singing to you. The little guy right there fishing, he loved the attraction. Yep. It's one of my favorite pictures of him is on that drop. He looks terrified. But I promise you, he loved the ride, loved the attraction. And it really, like Tim said, I mean, everything. And I'm a sucker for log flumes anyway. I love the idea of the log flume ride. I, there's one in... Uh, uh, um, Lake George, New York, uh, over in uh, Six Flags, uh, Great Escape. That's pretty well done. Uh, it's a classic <laughs> style flume ride uh, for the local New Englanders. If you remember Rocky Point, uh, which is in my neighborhood, as it were, um, that flume was one that we grew up going on. Andrew, I know, and, and it's just that flumes have always been a great ride to me. A really cool design. And uh, for me, my wife, my kids, um, I-, I think we'll miss. Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Fox, and Br'er Bear, but we couldn't be more excited about what's coming. Uh, we think it's going to be a really fun time. True, I I know that I I, I took some of the story. Oh yeah. With with the with the Yukon hats yeah. and and the trips that we took, but I know that you also 
I don't know if you dragged Zoe on it, but but yeah. uh, I want to hear your your core memories, as it were, yeah, of Splash no, Mountain. Um, I, I mean, very similar. I mean, you absolutely stole my my core memory of those 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 after dark type um, exhibits and that one memory specifically when we tried to our mission on that trip was to find go on every ride over and over until we find all the hidden Mickeys and that that it was such a blast pre cell phones pre everything so you had to really just search and talk to people you communicated with the cast members to find out um and it's funny you speak about flume rides in general but i have a lot of core memories of me and you anywhere we go always trying to make a flume ride um like we were uh like in cool runnings and we were on the jamaican bobsled oh 100 percent. we used to do it was hard to do it in um the the magic kingdom splash mountain because it was such a, a wide version of a of a flume but the smaller ones our goal was to always try to not hit the sides and we would legit try to try to shift it so we wouldn't bang around and um it was definitely intense but um similar story with my daughter zoe as far as bringing her on there uh she was excited she was definitely a little nervous but um just the 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 experience of of bringing your child onto a ride for the first time um when when we talked about in the past about it's what ride would you want to experience again for the first time like you've never been on it before or that feeling when you don't a brand new ride when you bring your kids on it is that feeling and it might actually be better than when you experience for the first time because now you know what to expect and you can just watch the enjoyment and you know what parts are coming up that you know when to look at your child's face and you just legit see that and it's just it's the perfect ride to have a child on you can sit there you enjoy the peacefulness of the songs the music the animatronics the setting and you know when you have those little drops and you know when you need to put your arm around your kid and kind of hold them tight you're going to laugh in place the big drop and it's just that thrill of excitement absolutely um some core memories for for a long long time and just like you guys have said i am super excited to find out what the imaginary uh, team can do with princess and the frog so i think we've got to kind of move on to this next topic here and talk about what's happening with uh, the big Disney announcement, right? So if you haven't been following, um, Bob, I don't know if you don't mind, I'll read this here, what, what Disney yeah, has go said. Ahead. That's, yeah, go ahead and give yeah. us the statements. It's probably so best this was, for everybody. Um, like you said, Thursday, Disney came out and they announced, they said, um, uh, pretty much announced that they were, they were changing the ride over to Princess and the Frog. And here's what they said. We pick up this story after the final kiss and join Princess Tiana and Louis Allen uh, musical adventure featuring some of the most powerful music from the film. As they prepare for their first ever Mardi Gras performance, Tiana is a modern, courageous, and empowered woman who pursues her dreams and never loses sight of what's really important. It's a great story with a strong lead character set against the backdrop of New Orleans and Louisiana Bayou in 1966. Walt himself opened New Orleans Square when it became the first new land added to a Disneyland park. So it feels natural to link the story, incredible music to the Princess of the Frog in our parts. So it, it's funny. And I think we should all talk about this for a minute because, um, you know, when I you first see this announcement, right, you, they, they, they did a they did a nice little visual graphic of um, kind of Splash Mountain spiced up a little bit with Tiana and, and stuff. And the first thing you think about is like everything going through your mind of the movie and related it to um 
you know, what they're going to do. What's the potential? And I want to talk about your guys' opinions here. And at first I was like, well, they're going to do – it's almost like a sequel, right? At, at, at first I'm thinking to myself, man, this is going to be amazing. They're going to start off in New Orleans and maybe talk a little bit of story. Then we get it about her and wanted to open up the restaurant. And then, you know, maybe Dr. Facilier will be involved and we're going to go to the laughing place, which is now really the other side. And I can just picture that end scene in her nice, awesome new restaurant. It's going to be fantastic. And then I'm like, whoa, that's not going to happen. None of that's going to happen. This is all a sequel. This is all post Princess and the Frog. Um, And then I started thinking about it like, I like that idea. It's almost like I got to experience a new story with the beloved characters. And maybe we'll get to see more of Tiana. So what was... What was your guys' first opinion when you saw this, uh, Bob? Were you excited or were you kind of um, kind of thrown off a little bit? Well, no, so I was never thrown off. I, I think we've all discussed the problems inherently with Splash Mountain at this point. Um, and I will tell you from a story standpoint, I love Princess and the Frog so much, the film itself, that I'm completely okay with it. I think you can do so much. I, I am bummed that I, I'm not anticipating seeing a Dr. Facilier uh, <laughs> appearance, which is unfortunate. Uh, one of the great uh, modern-day Disney villains, in my opinion. Um, but just, I mean, you look at that film, and you look at how beautiful the sets are and how beautiful the animation is, that th- this ride is going to be killer. It's going to be great. I would caution a lot of people out there saying, well, you know, uh, uh, well, it's not really a mountain. There's no mountains in Louisiana. Oh, there's no mountains in the bayou. I, we all do understand the concept here that Splash Mountain by name is Splash Mountain, but it really is technically Chickapin Hill. That's all it is. It's none, mm. It was never a mountain. It was just the official stage name of the attraction, but the attraction itself is Chickapin Hill. So I think uh, if you set it where it's going to look like Mom, Mama Odie's you know, bayou area, Maybe beforehand, I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. Uh, maybe that's the impetus for you know the design, and that's what it looked like in the in the uh, the concept art. It looked like it was going to be Mama Odie's yep. tree. Um, it certainly looked like that. I don't know if obviously that was concept art, so it will yep. change a hundred times and probably already has changed oh, a hundred yeah, times absolutely. before then. Um, and, and before we get into the technical aspects of the ride, because I know we all have feelings about that, Bob. Tim, what? Um... Same question as far as what was your original uh, takeaway when you saw that it was almost a sequel to the original story in a way? I mean, I was just excited for the change in general, just with Prince of the Frog being such a universally beloved movie. Something mm-hmm. that became an instant classic and also something that um, was really Disney's triumphant return to traditional animation after a long stretch of computer animated movies. But also, I like the idea that it's going to be a quote-unquote sequel to the or uh, take place after the events of the movies because people love, for some reason, just love, love, love to complain about IPs in the parks (laughs) as though that's a bad thing, that Disney is not a collection of intellectual properties. So, I mean, I think if you just did a retelling of part of Princess and the Frog as um, as a ride it would just invite so many people to have more ammunition to complain about that aspect of the park. So we'll, we'll get an original story. We'll get more Princess of the Frog content. And I think that's a win. And it also lets the Imagineers not be bound into um, certain things and better be able to use the existing elements of the ride and the ride layout um, 
to to tell a, a, a more complete story instead of shoehorning an already told story onto that uh, mm-hmm. onto those rails, basically. Tim, are you are you taking a shot at Frozen Ever After right there by shoehorning a story in? <laughs> uh, I'm not. I actually like. I mean, I was a. I actually was a Frozen Ever After hater despite being a big Frozen fan. Uh, but it's grown on me. I think it's it's yeah. actually an improvement. It's a fun ride, but around. I think it, I think the problem with Frozen Ever After now, in hindsight, is that Frozen Two came out. Yes, for sure. <laughs> it, it, I yeah. mean, it kind of changed. Not everything about it, but, I mean, Frozen 2 affects the enjoyability of that attraction, knowing where they're going. Andrew, you like the idea of the sequel, but I feel like you're kind of bummed. I think you actually had this crazy idea you are telling me about today that you anticipated this being almost a whole new mini-land over that way. I mean, I think, and I don't think we're far from that, to be honest. I mean, I don't think we're talking restaurants or things like that but i mean you're, you're of course i would have assumed that we're going to have um a new redesign of the gift shop there because splash mountain has a decent sized gift shop there um they have the little play area over there which they could do something if they really wanted to which is which is a, a crap shoot over there to begin with we've talked about oh. that um you have the whole back where you have almost like the old photo pass area with like a weird second gift shop um like there's a lot of like small odd areas over there. I can, nooks def- and crannies. I can definitely see some new character meet and greets. Maybe pull Princess Tiana out of Princess Fairy Hall, put her over there somewhere. Maybe add like a, a Prince Naveen type setting uh, a meet and greet as well. I could potentially see a lot of stuff happening there, and I don't think maybe they're ready to announce that. Maybe that's like phase two. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's 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 potential. I don't want to say they'd ever do a restaurant over there. I mean, that's. Oh, I, I have I have my fingers fingers crossed for Tiana's oh, place me, quick service. Me, me too. And I mean, you have it kind of over there. That kind of the back end of Adventureland. That kind of is. There's a lot of weird space over there. Kind of where the the parade route starts. Um, I I don't know if there's a lot of room to build anything new. You'd have to take out the what is it the Mexican place over there? What's the Pecos Bills. Yeah, you, yeah. Uh, I, I don't mean, think you're taking all Pecos Bills. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think you are either. But that's the only place I think it realistically you could really fit it. Right? Well, maybe, I, on I the, think, maybe on the other side where those kind of those stands are that aren't even open all the time that like yeah. do serve quick service entrees. Every once um, in a while for the the, the, yeah. the, the crowded times. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I, I think mean, the problem I think the problem you run into here though is that Disneyland has got it made in the shade that they're going to kind of attach it to New Orleans Square. You don't have that here. I know. And to to build what you just described, and this is probably another topic for another episode, is would completely and utterly blow Frontierland off the map at this point. And Frontierland would pretty much just be Thunder Mountain. I mean, that would be. I actually disagree with that take. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about that in the last week. So in Disneyland, what Bob was alluding to is Splash Mountain is right next to the Haunted Mansion, which is right next to New Orleans Square. So basically, you re-theme Splash – and Splash Mountain is not in Frontierland in Disneyland. It's, it's in, in Critter it's in Country. Critter Country, right. <laughs> which Critter Country and Disneyland has kind of become Winnie the Pooh Land. So once Splash Mountain gets rethemed, Critter Country will become Winnie the Pooh Land, and New Orleans Square will encompass the Haunted Mansion in New Orleans Square – 
and Splash Mountain. So they do have it made in the shade. There's not any changes that need to be made. Maybe the Blue Bayou gets rebranded to Tiana's place, though I doubt it because it's so iconic. That seems unlikely, too. Yeah. But in Disney World, I don't think it's too much of a stretch with theming with Louisiana being one of the original – well, one of the original frontiers before Westward expansion started and also once Westward expansion started being a gateway to the frontier uh, for the southern routes. I think if Disney spins it right – it, it can certainly fit into the existing concept of Frontierland. Maybe putting a Creole or Cajun restaurant in is too much of a stretch. But, I mean, maybe we get one of those stands rethemed to something more New Orleans-y. Mm-hmm. Even if it just sells beignets in, um, in the Magic Kingdom for the first time, which I know Disney fans would love to be able to grab some uh, Mickey beignets on a snack credit mm-hmm. right inside the park. Yeah, I mean, the the only thing I, I will say is maybe, just maybe, this is the, the, the phase one of, of a larger, bigger picture. And I'm not saying maybe get rid of Frontierland, but I see what you're saying, Tim, with this re-theming. Um, I mean, we there's been so many rumors in the past about Country Bears and, and what's going to happen with it. I know you don't want it to go anywhere, Tim, but... The, I, the, the, I will be the... I'll start the change.org petition for Keep <laughs> Country Bears. Um I mean, of course, you have um, Tom Sawyer's Island and the riverboat. Well, the riverboat and, and, and that stuff, I mean, it's a little separate. But there is there is a lot of potential of stuff around that spot that are, I hate to say it, getting outdated. Where if Disney wanted to throw some money, there's a lot of potential to re-theme in, especially if you want to bring these IPs, which, again, it depends on how you decipher the word IP. But there, there's potential definitely to do something. Um I definitely, I mean, obviously you don't get at the new gift shop. I wouldn't be surprised to see Tiana either stay where she is or move. I think it's a missed opportunity to move her. But again, that's a, I agree with you, Bob. That's a weird spot over there. It's congested to begin with. Mm-hmm. It's only going to get more congested once you open a brand new ride, essentially. And if you start adding character meet and greets and stuff over there, that place is a dead end and it, it's, it's a crapshoot. It's nowhere to go today. Mm-hmm. Just with those yeah. two rides. Never mind once they, they completely reboot it. I um, go back to our episodes with our good friend Andrew Keist about Liberty Square and Frontierland and disagree about everything you guys said about how that is laid out would work as a gateway to the West. I, I, I don't I don't discount the, the Louisiana purchase as being important in frontier expeditions and and a starting point as a gateway to the West. I just, I, like you said, that tells a story from one end, at, let's go to the end where Haunted Mansion is, through Big Thunder of a time chronologically chronologically tells a story from one end of of mm. the river to the other i mean it's just it's it's there's a lot to that and it would be a gigantic stretch for them to sell me on the idea that oh well this is still adventure this is still this is still frontier land because oh this is the louisiana purchase area of it which mm. would in hindsight make a ton of sense with the old west being represented by big thunder it really would but mm-hmm. I just the way that's laid out, I just I think it would just require an entire reorganization of that area. That side of the park would just it need would. to be completely retooled. 
And, 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 and I hate to dip down this road, but I, I think, and I hate to say this, because like you said, Bob, there was a vision and reason why everything's laid out exactly the way it was. Um, I unfortunately hate to say it. I think the era is 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 ending where um, they have these themed lands, which I don't think mean the same thing they originally meant when Walt designed it. No, apartment. certainly not. 50 years so, on, they don't mean the same thing. That they is don't. So different. I wouldn't be surprised if they start getting away from that true meaning and add in more of these attractions. That They're already doing it at Epcot. So, I mean, look, I at, mean, look at Tomorrowland. They just slap in anything that's, that's what they think is space or whatever, you know, yes. and they say it's, it's, it's the future. So throw it in Tomorrowland. I mean, you kind of yeah. have circus land, which we love, and it's kind of a stretch of fantasy land. I mean, the, 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 the storytelling doesn't exist like it originally did. Correct. So I, I don't know. I agree. So the last thing I want to talk about here is, and then we can, we can kind of wrap it up slowly, but, um, Bob hit something on this today that I, I really, I really liked. And I really thought it reminded me of a few things were, the potential of what this ride is going to encompass. So Disney did state, true or not, it has been in the making for over one year. That could mean it was over in the making for 13 months. It might have been in the making for three years. Who knows? Um, the good thing about this is Splash Mountain is upkeeped very well due to their annual refurbishes um, as far as the actual, let's say, fundamentals of the ride. So we got that going for us. It's not it's not a ride that can go a few years and then needs maintenance. It's it's it, we know for a fact it should be up to cheap pretty well. Um, what do they do on the inside? I want to talk about a little bit because I think Bob talked about a little bit with the new technology nowadays where we're talking about an attraction that's that's really almost probably 30 years old once they, they started constructing it. Right. Um, versus all these new technologies. And, you know, I, I almost think right over to, uh, you know, my favorite boat ride in Pandora where uh, well, that's exactly what it's going to be. It is, and I let you. Why don't you talk about it, Bob? Because I don't want to steal your thunder. This was kind of your well, vision, exa- and I really I mean, agree. Well, this is exactly what it's going to be, and yep. they're, you're going to get updated animatronics. You're going to get, uh, hopefully, you're going to get on par or better than what you have in Frozen, and hopefully, uh, significantly more reliable than the Frozen uh, Ever After animatronics. I don't anticipate that we're going to get the Shaman of Song from <laughs> from. Navi River Journey, but I will tell you, there there was an idea, as Nick Fury says, that uh, when they were building Pandora, that in the Navi River Journey, that is the first half of the ride that you're on, Correct. and there was a second half of that attraction that would have featured uh, drops, it would have been much more interactive, and it would have been more animatronics, Um I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to get screens in this attraction. That's what you're, you're going to get screens. That's yep. just deal with it. You're going to get new animatronics and you're going to get the Navi river journey that you never got in Pandora. That's what you're going to get on this right. attraction. Cause it's already there. It's, it, it, you can't unflume ride the flume. I mean, that's, that's it. You can't undo it once it's done. So it's not, you're not starting from scratch. You're taking out the old animatronics. You're putting new ones in, You'll obviously have new music. You'll have to paint it, obviously. But this will be a, in my opinion, if they're going, because I don't believe in them to completely strip it to the studs. I think it will be screen technology, which I've actually, send your hate mail to me. I'm actually on board with at this point. Went done correctly. 
when done correctly. And I think the I think this ride is built for that already. It this is. is my concern: is that this isn't a brand new attraction. This is a reskinning. This is an IP going to a new IP. This, this is not Mickey and Minnie's Runaway. Correct. You're going to tear everything down and start fresh. Yep. Th- this ride is already there, and it's just re- it's telling the story differently. That's all it is. And I think you're going to get screens, new new guys, and I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm looking forward to it. I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I do worry about my little gopher that screams FSU when you're running down the, <laughs> when you're going up the hill, and I worry about my my vultures. I, I worry about them because they're my low key favorite characters in the in Splash Mountain currently. The guys that you know warning you with the jaunty top hats, as Tim would like to tell you. Um, I, I think it's going to be okay, but I think it's going to be. I think that there's a certain sector of the of the populace that go to Disney that are going to be disappointed in what they get out of this attraction because it's going to be a Frozen Ever After 2.0, and a what I'm not, percent? and I don't mean to say that in a derogatory yeah. way, but that people are people aren't going to like that, and that's what it's going to be. In my, in it is. And, uh, like said, I don't that's think it's a bad I, thing. No. I, I don't think, um, but r- real question: What percentage of confidence will Doctor Facilia be in the ride? I I say zero percent. Oh, I'm also zero zero percent as well. I, I, uh, maybe like I, a cameo. Because he is like a well-liked character, and he features pretty heavily into the villain stuff that has been such a hit for them with the after hours and the merchandising. Um, I mean, I just but, love to see him in there. Yeah. But I, 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 yeah, I agree. A very low percentage chance. Well, I mean, me and Tim said zero, so I mean, it can't get much lower than that. Well, I'm not going to say zero because I have I have hopes. You believe dreams. You believe in Tony Baxter, who is actually serving as a creative advisor for the makeover on this attraction. He, so. he is. He is. So, I my I agree largely with what Bob said. Um, I don't think the I think the screens are going to be way more Navi River Journey, where they're obfuscated behind some layers yeah. of practical. Oh yeah, effects. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it, this yeah. is not going to be like a a u the Universal screen rides where people talk a lot of trash on them oh no no heaven forbid forbid that happens such a beloved ride um and as far as the animatronics um i hope they get rid of almost all the ones they have because they're very old very very many generations back from what their current technology Mm -hmm. is and i I know bub says he hopes for frozen after after i hope for at least the new style animatronics that they're using for like the upcoming Beauty and Beast ride over at the Asian parks, uh, Winnie the Pooh's Honey Hunt at Tokyo Disney, um, some of the stuff in Rise of the Resistance, that newest generation of the very lifelike, very quiet moving um, animatronics. So, so uh, I would I would caution again, I would temper your expectations if only because this is a reskin and I firmly believe they don't want this down for more than – Nine to twelve months. I think that's my concern. Is that unless those are ready to go, and and yeah. you can, hopefully they are, and maybe if they were planning correctly, they should be ready to go. But I I I, I caution everybody to temper their expectations on what this retheming is going to be. I agree. I, 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 I agree. And and my only thing I'm going to say is, and Tim, you kind of made me spark my my thought with the rise of resistance stuff. You know. I wouldn't be surprised, and you compare it to the Winnie the Pooh as well. The Winnie the Pooh stuff is a good example where mm. um, those vibrant 
colors, smooth textures, and maybe mm-hmm. not as realistic, but that cartoonist type feel. Remember, just keep in mind, Disney has had issues with animatronics. Look at Rise of Resistance. I don't think we see an overcomplicated animatronics in this. There's gonna, it, it's a long ride. They're going to need to have a lot of these things. Maybe you see one or two Tianas that's very detailed. But the rest is going to be, I think, fairly simple things because you don't want this ride to go down, right? And and I think it, it is it's just going to be um, something they want to make sure is reliable, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Yeah, I, I agree. So, all right. So that's our take on the future. Uh, I think maybe as we hear more news in the future – uh we will talk about this hopefully it's sooner than later hopefully the plan is for the 50th i mean that's a lot of the plan so who knows and um maybe they're further along than we think and like bub said hopefully it's just uh everything's ready it's just get in there you know three months of just taking everything down and then six months of of the painting and putting everything in just grab it from the warehouse and throw it in and it, at least it's in a, a portion of the park that's kind of off to the corner uh where they probably didn't have easy access from behind the scenes so that is some good stuff there. You're not talking about like uh, the castle, for example, where it's hard to do stuff in the middle of the park. All right, guys, that has been a long but excellent main topic this week. We kind of talked all the way from the, the history to the present to the future, and uh, we're excited. We're excited to find out. But we do uh, want to have a quick Random House of Mouse before we just wrap this up. So let's head on over to the Random House of Mouse. Not knocking at the House of Mouse. Yes, the random house of mouse today. Uh, we're calling this one Things Change. And it is the wisdom of Walt and the wisdom of one Marty Sklar. So I'm going to give you two quotes. I want to get your guys' take on them. Uh, Walt Disney once said that Disneyland will never be completed. It will continue to grow as long as our imagination left in the world. Drew, it, it couldn't be more poignant than it is this week, but w- w- what is your takeaway from Walt's? Um, is, is he kind of telling you from the past, listen, settle down, things are going to be okay? I think so, and I think we kind of talked about it uh, just a little while ago where uh, I think he, he's a realistic man. He understood that mm-hmm. what he was doing and creating, he was trying to tell the story, um, but he also understands, I mean, he lived through a, a time period where stuff changed. We just, we just talked to Holtz you know, 40 minutes about Son of the South. So I think what he means by this is that the park will evolve and hell, if, if, you know, this migration from, you know, the East to the West of Liberty square to Frontierland doesn't make sense anymore. That's okay. And it, it, it's okay to move on and you're going to have your purists, but, um, you got to do what it made sense, and it's going to continue to evolve where you're using animatronics from one ride and putting them in another ride, and uh, you got to be open to that. Disney mm-hmm. World is a, is a constant, evolving place. If it's something that just was always there and, and held in the past and, you know, screen captured, uh, would we love it? And well, it becomes a museum, Drew. Becomes a would museum. we love it as much as we love it today? I think mm-hmm. we love Disney for the the not knowing of what the next step were. And this Splash Mountain episode in the future of, of, of Princess of the Fraud is a perfect example of this. Mm-hmm. So that's my take on it. Tim? I, I agree with most of what Drew said. Um, I 100%. I mean, the man himself said it. This is not supposed to be static. As much as a lot of people believe that they their memories are tied up in specific things in the park, 
I think the magic goes away if you see it over and over again, uh, year after year, time after time, visit after visit. If nothing nothing changes and everything stays the same, the magic is eventually going to go away. All right, boys. So that's that's my take on it. One Marty Sklar, who is a Disney legend himself and did pretty much everything in the company, uh, from being a page boy of Waltz to running the company and running Imagineering uh, up until his death, pretty much. Uh, in an interview at D23 Expo in 2017, he stated, I can't think of a single attraction that has not been enhanced and improved, some over and over again. Change is a tradition at Disneyland that today's Imagineers practice. They learned it from their mentors, many of them Walt's original team of storytellers and designers, the Disney legends. It's interesting, he was referring to the news at the time that was uh, related to the changes going on at Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, And also another legendary attraction, uh, Tim... In this instance, it it kind of expands on what Walt is saying, but I think it takes it one step further with the Imagineers, I think, want to leave their stamp on things. So what do you feel, Marty, clearly channeling Walt in this interview? Yeah, I mean, to expand on what I said, my biggest pet peeve with Disney Parks fandom is – the people who claim to love these parks and that they're so important to them are also so resistant, so reticent to ever see anything in them grow and change with the parks. And and the fact of the matter is Disney pays the best and brightest artists and engineers and creative thinkers to basically throw all conventional wisdom out the window and come up with these great ideas. I mean, as Drew said, This has been in the works for more than a year. What that probably means is at any given time, Disney has all sorts of (laughs) ideas for retheming and redoing and changing these rides, sitting on a notepad, sitting in a file someplace. And it's just a matter of time before somebody gives them the go ahead, the green light to do these sorts of things. And I think us as fans, we need to trust in this company that we claim to love and not second guess every single decision they make, because I'll be honest. I don't think they've made a lot of bad ones with the parks um, attractions and shows wise. I think most of what they've done over the years in terms of modernizations and upgrades and stuff have made sense largely. Except for the uh, Yeti. I mean, we, yeah. <laughs> but when, so when the Yeti gets fixed, I guarantee it. Mark my words, Bob, whether it's. 13 years from now or 13 months from now or 30 years from now, there's going to be people who are pissed off that that Yeti works again. However, the Yeti is no longer. However, they figure out how to fix the Yeti is not going to be good enough for them. Correct. And it's just Mm. ridiculous, uh, in my opinion. Literally, the most annoying thing to me about the Parks fandom is people's just absolute reticence to let go of what they think the park should be and Mm. let Disney Imagineering do their thing when these people are so freaking good at their jobs. Absolutely. I mean, what about you, Drew? Technology changes by the second, a blink of the eye, you know, and, and, and Tim nailed it. You know, people don't want 
uh, technology to change things. I mean, just just look over the last 20 years with cell phones, right? I mean, do you want to be walking around with a briefcase? Well, I mean, more than 20, but a briefcase cell phone in your pocket to a brick phone to a, a, a computer in your hands. I mean, it's the same concept where if someone in the street and you said, hey, do you want to trade your, your, your mini laptop in your hand for a briefcase cell phone? Who in their right mind is going to say, yeah, you know, so it, it, it's the same thing with these Disney attractions. Technology is continuously changing. And God help me, you two are going to be telling me, but it's only a matter of time before something like the Carousel of Progress needs to be have, have a big decision made. Do we take it down, you know, or do we have to revamp the whole thing? And again, I get it's a it's a it's a big part of, of Walt and the history of Disney. But at the same time, it's it's you've got to go with technology and you've got to go with these new animatronics and you've got to go with the times to keep up to get customers. Uh, it, it's a <laughs> Bob, it's a business and you have to you have to keep it rolling. Listen, I think the key thing to remember here, folks, is you can't run from trouble. There is no place far enough. Drew, take us home. All right. Thanks so much, guys. This was an absolute blast. We hope we did justice for this amazing attraction and the history behind it. But that is going to wrap up this week's episode of Splash Mountain. So if you have any feedback, as always, uh, please, please email us. We want to hear from you. Check in our show notes. All our information's there. All of our social media contacts, our email address. That is the best thing to do. Hit details on whatever uh, app you're listening to, and you can see all of it right there. Um, we want to, uh, as always, thank Jordana. Though she couldn't be on tonight, she definitely was uh, helping us out throughout the weeks and giving us some amazing information about this. Uh, but remember to reach out to her for all of your Disney vacation needs at Travel Nation because she is there booking trips and she will spend seven hours on the phone for you if that's what you want to get some information about Disney. Reach out to her at jordanaizzo at travelmation.net uh, As I mentioned, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Please subscribe. We want you to subscribe. Um, and as always, if you really love us, we ask you for $2 a month. That's it. A measly $2 per month. It really helps us upgrade our equipment and go a long way. Uh, so again, we hope you enjoyed this amazing episode of Splash Mountain, and thank you for listening to The Disney Guys on Censored. May Walt Disney World bring joy and inspiration and new knowledge to all who come to this happy place. Swiss, 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 Swiss,